Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. Uh, my name is Nat, not to be confused with Nate, uh, although I will answer to it because I have for my whole life. It's Nat, John. Don't go. That's John who always calls me Nate. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, I've, I, I call you Nate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with me, as always, uh, the guy providing the, uh, the color commentary and the banter is my brother, John. Uh, say, hey, John. Hey, John. Yeah, wasn't, who, who was the guy in baseball they called Say Hey? Was that uh, Willie Mays? The Say Hey Kid is Willie Mays. The Say Hey Kid, Willie Mays. All right, so now you're the, you could be the Say you could be the Say Hey Kid. No, no, that's taken. <laughs> I'm not no. taking that from Willie Mays. No right. way. <laughs> well, we uh, we uh, we just want to welcome you back to the podcast. Uh, this is the thing we have called. This is not church, and every time we say it, we sort of stumble over it. So that's how we roll. Uh, we are <laughs> blessed, honored, privileged, whatever you want to say, to have this next guest with us. His name is Paul Swearingen. I uh, reach his bio real quick, and we will jump headfirst into some awesome conversations. So here we go. Uh, Paul Swearingen is a licensed minister, an author, a podcast host, an emotional and spiritual well-being coach dedicated to affirming those searching for personal transformation and renewal in today's often confusing culture. Known as the TikTok pastor, which by the way is awesome, and a survivor of the emotional abuse of an evangelical upbringing, Paul brings in this season an important, if not unconventional, voice to the world of religion, politics, and spirituality. He has a website. It's uh, pastor-paul.com. He's written a novel called Joseph Comes to Town, When the Religious Right Becomes Religiously Wrong. And he also hosts his own podcast called The Post-Evangelical Podcast, which was formerly known as the Nonpartisan Evangelical uh, Evangelical Podcast. Why do I stumble over that word? You don't like it. <laughs> it must be. There must be something sort of Freudian or not yeah. like subconscious about every time I say the word evangelical, I sort of stammer it out. But anyway, uh, we've said all that to say this, which is welcome to the podcast. Paul, how, how are you doing, buddy? Great. Thank you guys for having me on. Very cool to be with you. Absolutely. Well, you're coming to us from uh, from Northern California too. So John's in his little unincorporated part of uh, Humboldt County, and you're in Fresno, right? <laughs> Excuse me, Central California. I'm sorry, Central California. Central California. Yes. All right. Yes. So, <laughs> Have you given your Central? in Northern California get offended the, when you the, call. The, but does, does Fresno, <laughs> does that part of California have its own name? Like y'all have Jefferson, apparently, is the northern part. And the, what do they call the central part? Well, Central California is basically the term we use, or, or or we are in a valley between two huge mountain ranges, so it's called the San Joaquin Valley. But ah, okay, that's, the San Joaquin Valley goes clear from the top of the state down to the top of Southern California. So we don't all claim each other. So really, just Central California is what we call ourselves. And and uh, if it were its own state, it would still be one of the larger states in the country. Oh yeah, uh, no, yeah, it's so. Uh, so that's it. But we love Northern California. We kind of like Southern California. <laughs> so you kind of play a little bit nice with both because like Northern Californians really don't like Southern Californians at all and vice versa. Like there's a world of difference. People don't understand if you're not from California, if you've never lived there, you don't understand the diversity of that state. Yeah. Um, how very, very different Northern California is from Southern California, which is different from Silicon Valley, which is 
you know, so it, it's I was, uh, I was a sportscaster here, owned a, a sports radio group or, or a radio group for many years with, a, with an ESPN station. We did a lot of research here and Fresno is generally about sort of a 57% Bay Area sports fandom team. So okay. giants with some evil people that root for the Dodgers. And then, <laughs> Nobody uh, gives a shit about the A's. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like rooting for your little brother, you know, you kind of yeah. like you like, hope they do well, yeah. but you, you know, if they but you're not surprised they when they don't. It's yeah. no big deal. Oh, wait, way to go, I, little buddy. You tried. Yeah. Good job. I'm actually I'm actually really excited. I I kind of hope the A's move to Vegas. I think I think they could have a a, a chance of revitalizing that team if they follow suit well. with the Raiders. And it, it, it's, in a, it's in talk. So I, I the just, second they announced the Raiders are moving to Las Vegas, I immediately went, "Well, that makes sense." Yes, like yes. that just fits the vibe of the Raiders, anyway. But man, we're glad you're here. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. I know we get your bio, but that's always that's bio stuff, man. Um, who is Paul Swearingen? Well, I I grew up in a, a, an evangelical home. My dad was a, a fairly renowned Assemblies of God pastor, so I grew up believing at any moment Jesus was going to come and I would be left behind because I liked a song by Kiss on the radio or my That'll hair was too long or I, uh, you know, looked at a magazine cover. I, I have am a recovering uh, evangelical childhood trauma survivor. And I say that somewhat tongue in cheek when in fact it is in fact a fact and Absolutely, not a funny, yeah. funny thing at all because many of us are, are recovering from the trauma of, of that. And, um, but grew up, uh, became a, a pastor myself after a, a career as a sportscaster and broadcast company owner. Um, just felt like God wanted me to be a pastor. And, and, uh, so for 10 years, uh, we had planted a church and led it. At the same time I was planting the church, my wife ran for mayor of our city and, um, and was two term mayor of Fresno, which is a town of about 500,000 people here in Central California. Um, and so we just have an interesting mix in our household of religion and politics, the two things you're never supposed to talk about. But in the early <laughs> 2000s, when, when GW was president, I really started looking around at the church around me, even as I was in my, my seminary training and saying, something's off. This, this right wing, single issue, abortion focused church isn't what I read in the Bible. And, but I knew we were so good that it was okay. But then President Obama got elected. I voted for Obama twice secretly without letting anybody know. Um, and I begin to see our passionate hatred for President Obama in the church. And I thought, this really doesn't match up. And I began to start to talk about it with people. And I began to feel like, things are really bad. But again, I felt like, but we're so good and doing so much good. It's okay. And then 2015 happened. Uh, all of a sudden, Donald Trump is the Messiah. And that was the culmination of like, oh, we're not good. We're actually not good at all. Our heart is very dark. And uh, I began to speak out and felt like I had to start to say, hey, guys, not only is something off, we're off. We're, we're not good. And so since, uh, so I stepped out of leadership of my church on uh, New Year's Day 2019. 
and uh, began speaking out and podcasting and, and blogging and writing. And, and so now I do this as the TikTok pastor and a podcaster and, and all the things that I do now because we got to change. The, the church has not only become apostate in my mind, but an existential threat to people and our country. I, I don't know. Am I overstating that? Am I true, too dramatic? No, I don't think so. No, I, matter of fact, I, uh, you probably haven't gone far enough with a lot of what what I what we've seen in the last. Well, for sure, during during the presidency of forty five, but I think I think that was always there. He was just the vocal, outspoken person who finally was brazen enough to say what they've all been saying or thinking or saying behind closed doors, and now all of a sudden the doors have been blown wide open, and they are all just lockstep behind him. And it's just, it was scary to watch. And I think you're so right, John. And I actually think it's good. It's the blessing of the season is we're, we're, we're being honest to who we are, which is a race-based, nationalistic, religiously exclusive religion, which is exactly what Jesus stood against. I, I still read the Bible, John, and I know you've given it up some, but I think that's exactly the, the church establishment that Jesus was adamantly opposed to that we read about in the Gospels. I think we have become that church. And by we, I mean, I talk about my people who are sort of the culturally white evangelical Western church. Yeah. Well, that's the one thing that you know, we had Brian Zond on the show not too long ago. And one of the things he said that stuck out to me was he's like, listen, America is three things. You know, it's a, it's, it's an empire, it's a culture, but it's a religion too. He goes, if you don't think it's a religion, um, it has its own creeds. It has its own, you know, structures you're supposed to adhere to things. You're, and, uh, my, my, my associate pastor, I have a little church. Um, my friend Todd and I, we call, I, I shouldn't call him an associate pastor. Todd, if you're listening, uh, co-pastor. We do this together, right? Associate pastor always sounds like there's some kind of hierarchy and like he works for me. That's not the case. But anyway, we, uh, we're in the middle of a series. We're, we're teaching through Keith Giles' books, uh, several of his books, and we're talking about... So yesterday was the... Uh, we talked about Jesus and politics, you know? And uh, this whole concept of... Un- I guess, well, <laughs> uh, Keith's book is called Jesus Untangled. So we're untangling... Jesus from the politics of, of, of nationalism. And, and he told a story about um, being interviewed to be a youth pastor at this little church here where we live. And uh, they invited him to come speak and just sort of check it out. And he's like, they started the service out and they, they roll out the American flag. And before they start, they have the kids recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Wow. And so they pledge allegiance to the American flag in this church. And then they turn around and pledge allegiance to the Christian flag, which at this point he didn't even know was a thing. He's like, I didn't know there was a Christian flag. And then he's like, I just turned around and walked out. It's like, I don't understand what you're doing here. Then pledge allegiance to the KJV Bible as well. So this whole concept of pledging allegiance, you know, um, I don't know, dude. I I just, it's so weird because you don't have to even read the Bible critically. You just have to, you can read the Bible very superficially. You can read the gospels very superficially and see that Jesus stood against pledging allegiance of any kind to a political structure. And by the way, that American, that American religion you're talking about has, has its own scripture, the Constitution, which we Absolutely. know was, was sent from Sinai on stone tablets. Well, and it's, and it's revered in the same way, right? It's, it's, exactly. it's, it's inviolable. Uh, it, it's, it's inerrant. 
we are constantly trying to figure out what the what the the founders intentions were behind everything they wrote and our interpretation is the only right one right right so i remember going through i was a very very um conservative evangelical in my in my 20s and uh i remember you know the mantra of of all of the politicians that i followed was we wanted to you know our biggest thing was getting people on the supreme court who were constitutionalists and we wanted somebody to be a strict constitutionalist who would just, we don't want you to write laws, man. We don't need you to legislate. We just interpret the constitution correctly, please. It, yeah, so it's a very strange thing. Um, and you're exactly right that it, it um, it's antichrist. I mean, it, it, in, in the purest sense of the word, if it's, if you're standing in opposition to everything that Jesus stood for or vice versa, standing in lockstep with everything that Jesus was ever uh, vocally against, how you can't be anything other than antichrist. And somehow the blind, I think John's exactly right, by the way, with the phenomenon of, of Trump being a lightning rod and, 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 and in a sense, giving people permission to say out loud what they've been saying inside, you know, behind closed doors forever. Now they had a champion. And there's nothing more telling to me than, and maybe this was your experience too, tell me what you think about this. The six months or a year leading up to that election, I could criticize Trump um, without consequence. And I did, vocally and often. And I, I told my evangelical friends, I'm like, you are being played. This guy is playing you for a sucker. Don't buy it. Um, and, you know, I got a lot. I got a, I got a couple, uh, you know what we're talking about, but it was nowhere near the vitriol that, you know, the second he was elected, I can't say Jack without not just having people disagree with it, which is totally fine, but actually the personal attacks and the, you know, the, the level, I would, I would be losing friends left and right just for disagreeing with this guy who's a politician. So, I mean, did you, did you notice anything like that as well? Could you sort of criticize with impunity before and now there's all this backlash? Uh, now, when you think of California, you think of this very liberal state. I live in the state of Central California, which is very unliberal. Uh, right. uh, until just a couple of weeks ago, Devin Nunes was our our congressman, and Ooh, Devin McCarthy is down the road in Bakersfield. So we we live in a very conservative area, and around 2015 is when I really started seeing the craziness of. You know, even like some of my people in my church were doing things on chemtrails one day, how, how President Obama was poisoning us with chemtrails. And I, I sat down with some people from my church and they, they lost it on me. You need to be teaching people. You're a pastor. You need to be telling people. So it was my first real brush with the deep conspiracy theory. Christian. Mm. And, yeah. and I just, and so it just progressively got worse from there. And when I started seeing, <laughs> people and then our prophets begin to prophesy that Oof. Trump was the guy that God had sent. And in some ways, you know, my wife and I were like, he may be, but God, according to the Bible, God also gave the people Saul because that's what they wanted, that that God will give you your heart's desire. And I, I interviewed uh, a, an author named Kristen Dumay. You guys may have heard of the book, Jesus yeah. and John Wayne. Fantastic. We interviewed her too. Yeah, she's fantastic. Good. I interviewed her in 2019 and she was saying, you know, Christians didn't hold their nose and vote for Trump. Trump is what they want. And I, I, I was a little bit like, but I, I say today unequivocally, Trump has been the heart desire of right-wing American Christianity for a long, long time. Uh, it is, he, he is the result 
of the mindset that that was put in place in the late 70s. Trump is not the problem. Trump is the manifestation of the problem. I should say the worship of Trump and his ability to manipulate people uh, that were taught to be manipulated, not only by political single issue voting pressure, but also our in times eschatology teaching to believe in big worldwide conspiracies and that the world was going to hell in a handbasket and that everybody was us, everybody but us is evil. All of that has culminated in this season to see what we're seeing. And uh, yes, I, I had many of my parishioners angry, angry, angry that I kept telling them we're not going to hate President Obama. And then to not be standing for Trump and and not t- teaching people about QAnon, it all it all became a big deal. And last thing I'll say on that is I, I walked out of my uh, of our building one day on a Sunday morning because sometimes I just needed to get outside. I was antsy or just kind of see what's going on. And one of our prominent members uh, attenders, we didn't have members, but one of our prominent families. Uh, had their pickup parked right in front of the front door, and on their bumper it said "Huck Fillery." Wow! Trump, twenty sixteen, and I said to myself, "If somebody can sit under my teaching four Sundays a month, or however often I teach, and put that bumper sticker on their car, something is wrong." Mm. And I, I never got over that. And just it was a spiral down from there to which I finally found like I've there were other things going on as well. But I'm like, I've got to step out and and really begin to feel the urge of like, I, I'm, I'm going to have to step out so that I can speak out and, and yeah. say this is not OK. Because it is a bondage. It's putting people into into yeah. a slavery to a mindset that is anti-Christ. You're absolutely right. So I've had this conversation with a few of my conservative friends and I'm like, um, I I need, I need to understand why you have chosen to do some of the things that you are doing and and saying some of the things you're saying, because I know for a fact you were raised in the same church I was. And yes, it was, it was an evangelical church, but what I remember is even though I have serious problems with the church, but it was love your neighbor, take care of the poor, help the elderly, Leave the 99 to save the one. These are the stories that we were taught over and over again. And you guys, one after the other, have abandoned all of that to follow this guy. And the answer I got more often than not was, hey, we're just using their playbook against them. They've been doing this to us for so long. We're just going to do it back at them. It's like, oh, okay. So the other thing that you have taught me since I was a child, which is two wrongs don't make a right, no longer matters as long as your guy gets in elected and gets into the office. So you're willing to abandon everything that you were taught, everything that you taught me to get your guy into office. And that that means we'll go far as far as to, as we see now, because we're continuing in this, right? In a church, we know what they're saying when they say, let's go Brandon, in the church. And the pastor doesn't, not only doesn't say anything about it, negative, he actually champions that chant happening in his church. That's that's how far we've gone. Isn't it amazing the people that will point to Romans 13, 1 through 5, when a Republican is in office, suddenly can chant, let's go Brandon, when a Democrat is in office? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because apparently God is only in control when it's your guy. And mind you, a very moderate Democrat. I'm sorry, anyone who thinks this guy is a far left-leaning guy, 
you're being sold a bill of goods too. I have yeah. some well, major yeah, yeah. issues with our president. Yeah, I all, have, the, all, the, all the super liberal people in Congress are like, you're not going far enough. I mean, right. but, but at the end of the day, John and Paul, I mean, don't you, don't you all agree though that, I mean, politics has never really been about um, what's right and wrong and good or bad for the people. It's always about garnering and, and accumulating as much power as you can. And that, and that, that, that doesn't limit itself to left or right. I've seen, I've seen corruption all over the place. I, I, I don't remember if it was, uh, I think George McDonald says something to the, something to the effect of he didn't trust anybody who went into politics because, because uh, nobody who really loves their fellow man would ever want to lord over them with that kind of power. Um, and I've totally butchered something he said, I'm sure very beautifully because he's George McDonald, but that was essentially the, the, the nuts, the nuts and bolts of it was that, you know, just even sometimes the, the, the inclination to go into that kind of work where um, that's the, that's the bottom line is you're trying to accumulate and, and exert power over people. And, and that's what the two party system does. Um, my wife happened to be a Republican elected to office who actually wanted to see things fixed. And she was stunned to find out that uh, when she got elected in 2008 to the Republican party uh, mantra of everyone she talked to in the party was we have one goal and that's to make Obama a one-term president. That you said, that's exactly what you're saying. We want the country to fail. We want life to be hard for people so we can get reelected. But the, the problem with that idea, and I agree, there, there are huge problems with our two-party system. There are huge problems with our government. But one side is now saying we're doing it in the name of God. Exactly. No, you're and, right. And because you're a Christian, you have to be on this side and buy everything that goes along with that. Yes, the left has their problems. And yes, but they never have told me I'm going to hell if I don't vote for them. But the right, right, right. is. And, and, and in that, they're now saying the other side are, I, I can't believe I'm even saying this, but Satan worshiping baby eaters. You know, oh, yeah. We, I've, we been, have I've been literally called that. that. We have been to called stand that? against that. I, well, I've been called a Satan worshiping baby killer. Yeah, yeah, but you're not. A, you haven't risen to the level of baby eater yet, John. No, no, that's a, that's a level yeah. you, you, to which you yeah. can aspire. Yeah, but you're right. No, I, 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 I really despise uh, a lot of times the the false equivalency of the hey, there's there's bad guys. It's it's, it's just no it's no better than there's good people on both sides. Yeah. So then you sort of minimize the bad that someone's doing. Well, yeah, well, okay. Uh, the truth of the matter is, yeah, there are deeply flawed concepts and principles and structures in play on both sides. But I agree with you. Um, the The fact that they invoke the name of God to do it makes it particularly egregious in my mind. And that a that a a whole sect of the American Christian Church has married itself to it. I you know that that yeah. is that is horror Babylon stuff. But one of the things that I try to do, and I'm sorry to interrupt you there, Matt, was uh, no, not at all, man. I what I see in the model of Jesus that Jesus took the scriptures that everyone agreed to, and he says, "Here, let me show you how your own scriptures speak against." your belief system. And and I feel like this is what I'm trying to do to evangelicals. It's say, let me take your interpretation of the Bible and hold it up as a mirror to you so somebody can see. And and so like John was saying, it it was it was all about love love your neighbor as yourself. And and here comes 
a religious person saying, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I, you know, what, however we want to interpret what that says. And, and Jesus says, well, how do you judge it? And the guy says, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, great, you got it. Congratulations. And so then the guy's like, wait, but who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, which were there a Jesus figure on earth today, that would be the parable of the good Islamic fundamentalist, the par parable of the good abortion provider, the, the parable of the good democratic Brandon president. He, he would take our most hated enemy and make that person the hero of the story. And he said, the one who loves God is the one who can love that person you think least deserves God's favor, somebody of a different race, religion, nationality. He poked right at the heart of it. And that we miss that Jesus said, inheriting eternal life is loving the person you hate, of God telling Jonah, do you do well to think that I should kill the Ninevites just because you don't like them? I mean, to me, the evangelical belief of the Bible should wholly speak against the belief system that we're in now. But we've got this echo chamber of pulpits, right-wing media, just bouncing around, and, and it's created this massive mindset of blindness. I Probably what Paul called a principality in the scripture that has just huge sway over people today, and it's, it's tragic to see, and I just want to get as many people out of it as I can. Absolutely. Well, and there's only one group, though, that I think would eclipse the hatred of the that evangelicals have towards Islamic fundamentalists and abortion doctors, and that would be gay folks. So that is still perfectly on the table, by the way, in the evangelical circles in which I travel to 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 treat them really, really badly. So I, w I could see Jesus telling the story about the good uh, homosexual or the good transgender person or the good, because still, even in the circles, like I said, where I, where I hang out, gay Christians is, is an oxymoron for a lot of people. They just don't see it and they just don't get it. And I tell you what, it's, it's, it's one of those battles. John and I, John and I are doing our very, very best to have people on the show who are affirming and who can articulate these ideas well, but we're one small cog you know, in a wheel that is turning the other direction uh, very often. So do, do you know what's funny about that, though, is, and it's, it's funny, it's probably not the right word. I, I actually really think the tide has turned on that issue. People are just afraid to speak it out loud. Church leaders are afraid they're going to lose tithers. I, culture has completely, I think, changed on our view of homosexuality. And uh, but I think it's very much under the surface right now because evangelicals are afraid to speak it out. And I get that there are the, the, the John MacArthur's and the independent fundamentalist Baptist and all of that. But I think most of us inside now are starting to say, what? why would I hate those people for who they choose to have sex with? Right. Yeah. So I really do think that's turning. I just think the church takes a long time to come around to where culture is. You know, it's kind of like how we used to look at divorce and, you know, tithers. Yeah, so once our tithers start turning on the issue of homosexuality, right. I think that will turn. <laughs> I, I solved that problem by not having tithers. So I just don't, I just don't even care about that anymore. Um, but the, uh, I do, I wonder if... Uh, and not you know, having a me, building can help with that. Yeah, I mean, doing some things differently can can free you up to speak your mind, you know. But the, uh, it does feel like at times I, the, the optimist in me says some of the more, 
I don't know, I think virulent sort of attacks are the last sort of dying death throes of an old ideology. And they're just desperately clinging to something that they know they've lost. Like you just, the writing is on the wall. Everything is telling you you're on the wrong side of history at this point. And yeah, that, that's the optimist in me. I hope that's true because I'd love to look up in 20 years and have the vast majority of Christians think about um, LGBTQIA plus folks the same way that we think of any other group of people that we just, you know, like it's, it's hard to imagine that in, in my lifetime, even, and I'm 50 years old, um, that interracial marriage was a, was a, was a big, huge taboo. Um, and it still is in certain parts of the country. It still gets you looked at weird, but most Christians I know would never in a million years say anything against, you know, an interracial couple. And I'm hoping we get to that point where that seems as absurd to care about that as we do with the other things that have become so, you know, superficial. But I hope you're right about that, man. Yeah, and I, and I hear people say, Jesus said marriage is one man and one woman. And and I say, do you know who disagreed with that? King David, Abraham, yeah. <laughs> Jacob, every major patriarch of the Old Testament. So how is it that that God was able to change his view on that and allow... David and these others to do that, and and God can't flow with us in culture now. And I know there's a lot of talk about the homosexual passages being mistranslations, and and I'm still iffy on that. I'm still I'm still not totally sure that's true, but the Bible again, going back to the Protestant scripture, it shows a God who flows with culture and says. Abraham, I'm not excited that you knocked up your slave girl. I don't think that's the best way to live, but I'm not going to condemn you for doing it because that's the culture you live in. And and the same God, even if I feel like I trust the words of Paul or what we attribute to the writings of Paul in the Bible, that I can't say, God, have you flowed with culture here? And that when Jesus says, hey, Capernaum, you religious city, you know Sodom's going to have a better judgment day than you. Right. That we can't look at that and say, hey, maybe our stridency on this issue, uh, when it's only six passages in the whole of the Protestant canon of Scripture versus the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that say, love that one that you don't think is worthy of God's love should probably counterbalance those two things out. And I I do think our humanity, which is buried somewhere under that evangelicalism, is starting to tell us all, I really do want to love everyone, whether no matter who they're in love with. I I, I I want to be able to love that they're in love with that person. I want to be able to love that they've found love. Geez, I want to be able to celebrate with them. So yeah, I I know in the next generation that's going to change, but I am hopeful in my lifetime as well. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I see that within my kids. I mean, it's, it's a non-issue, right? It's, it's absolutely a non-issue for all of my kids. Um, um, you know, it's been a non-issue for me since I was like 18 or 19, just because of um, a group of people that I became friends with. And I think, uh, I think it's, um, we have friends who said this too. It's like, if you're not willing to go out and get to know people that are different than you, you are never going to understand how much alike you are. If you're willing to stay in your church, listen to your echo chamber, listen to your pastor or the president at the time say these hateful things about people that are not like you and you're just going, yep, that's true. Yep, that's true. And you're not willing to step out and get to know these people. Yeah, you're going to be stuck in this 
rabbit or this mouse wheel, right? This little hamster wheel thing. And you're never going to get off. You're just going to be stuck in this revolving bullshit that just comes back and comes back and comes back. I was listening to to Diana Butler Bass's book this morning because we're going to hopefully interview her in a little bit. And um, that was one of the things she she made this point. I actually, before I get a chance to talk to her about it, I'll talk to you about it. So that there's a scripture that says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what we have done is turn that into this uh, mantra by which we think that that how you just said this a few minutes ago really resonated with that God doesn't flow with culture. That God doesn't, so we, we get this, we get this concept of God being immutable as though it, and, and in his character and in his nature, yeah, fine. But then we don't allow for anything else. I just, she made a good point about that, that we've concretized that too much, um, and turned Jesus into a very static figure who, uh, you know, sort of stuck in place in time. And that's everything else that we all have to, to to move around to fit that. I'm curious what you think about that. Well, the interesting thing, first off, about what you say is it actually says God is the same yesterday, today, right, right, and forever. Right. Well, <laughs> well Hebrew, doesn't but, the book of Hebrews say Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever? Is it? I, I, I'm, I don't I'm pretty, know, but anyway, it, it could I'll be. I'll Google it, but I'm pretty sure. But it, yeah, either way. You may be right, but we have stories where God changes his mind, it says. And, and by the way, my concept of God as a being on a throne with a, with a beard like John's has changed an awful <laughs> yeah, lot. Beard like sure. both of you yeah. has changed an awful <laughs> lot over the years. But, but again, putting it into the evangelical context of a patriarchal God, even in that, we see stories where he changed his mind. How can an immutable God change his mind? You have, and, and I know there are amazing gymnastics we go through to, to say, well, he didn't really change his mind. But <laughs> our scripture, our inerrant, infallible, immutable, sent from Sinai stone scripture says, God changed his mind. God was sorrowful. God regretted. God relented. And, and that in itself shows a, a God who's going to look down and say, this worked for humanity here. It's not working here. And, and so to say that same yesterday, today, and forever thing is, is it just doesn't work. And, and particularly if, if we see here, here's this, the story of Peter, you know, sitting on a roof, hungry, and, and somebody from heaven, maybe it was Jesus, I don't know, somebody says, here, Peter, eat this, eat this pork and the shrimp. And Peter is like, hell no, hell no, Lord, I'll never eat that. Never, 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 never. And, and the, the, the being from heaven, you know, essentially says, and this is the Paul translation, essentially says, Peter, I know what your scripture says, or at least I know what your interpretation of scripture says. But if I'm truly your Lord, can I tell you to eat? what you call unclean, and can I tell you to love people you call unclean, which of course was what the allegory was all about. So can God come to me as the ultimate authority and say, Paul, I know what your interpretation of scripture is, but I want you to love the gay person. I want you to love the Muslim. I want you to love whatever community we have chosen not to love. And if my answer is no, because the Bible is a higher authority than than God's voice and urging in my heart, then I have, by all evangelical principles, created an idol that is greater than God. And I and and that's that was really my process of like, okay, God, I know what my scripture says, 
But if you want me to love those people, I'm going to choose to love those people. And, and I let loving my neighbor win out over my community interpretation of the Bible. And it changed everything for me. And it makes me so happy that I did. Mm. Amen to all that. We see churches create uh, an idol out of the Bible. They make it have the ultimate authority over everything that ha- they have to say. And now, you know, this isn't new, but it seems to be actually popping up on TikTok of all places where I've seen it is these pastors who have now put Paul above Jesus. Mm-hmm. Or at least equal to, right? They're at least co-sharers of the scripture, if not Paul greater than, because they are using Paul's words to tell us where Jesus was wrong. We are truly Paulians, not Christians. Yeah. And so we've created, we've created another idol in Paul, uh, who we have now deemed somehow. Well, I, I, I can't say that I said this. I don't know who said this, but it would be interesting to be able to go back in time and talk to Paul and say, Hey, you know, all those letters you wrote. By the way, people, these were letters to specific churches that he wrote. If you don't understand that. And tell him that say, did you know that these are, these are now considered the inerrant word of God and to be taken literally in every single step of the way for every single moment of our time? I think he'd look at us and say, you're freaking crazy. <laughs> I, was writing, I was writing a letter to a church that was having a problem and that we needed to correct. And that's all that was. I don't understand what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and if, I think if we showed him first and second Timothy, he'd say, I didn't write that shit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, gosh, up until what, 20, 30 years ago, that's, you know, everybody thought he wrote Hebrews too, you know. Yeah, and I, right. I still know a lot of, I still have a lot of Christian friends like will claim that Paul wrote two thirds of the New Testament because they, you know, anyway. And and here's my truly heretical view on all of that too. Now how I read the Bible now is Jesus' words trump everything else. Sorry to use the word trump. It's a little bit triggering. Ah, We're taking that word back, man. Jesus' words (laughs) overarches everything else. How about that? It does. It absolutely trumps it all. But I wonder, I also tend to wonder if, you know, Paul himself said, by the way, his name was Saul, and it didn't get changed. We just started pronouncing it in the Greek, by the way, just in case anybody's wondering. But he, he says himself, I am the religious of the religious. And I wonder if we didn't have this thing called the way out there that, that everybody's trying, okay, I, we're going to follow Jesus, this guy who we hear has been resurrected from the dead. Paul, being the religious of the religious guy, says, hmm, we're going to have to build a structure around this. It's too unorganized. And the religious guy writes to his own urge, you know, his, his, his own, we, we build something in our image when we build it. And, and even what I'm trying to do now with people, I'm trying to say, I want to be really careful that I don't build something new that looks like everything else I've ever built in my life. And, and did Paul try to put a structure around something that then created this man-made church that Jesus would look at and say, I never, ever wanted that to happen. I had no inkling we would get to this place. So so I also give Paul's words less credence because I know what his background was. And yeah, maybe he was transformed into believing this was bad and now it's good. But was he transformed from believing the religious structures of old were bad? Or can we say, no, we must have order and then build a structure that is something 
Jesus never intended to be built. I, it's an ultimate thing I say all the time, and I, I borrowed it from somebody else, I'm sure, like you're saying, John, but Jesus did not talk about starting the religion of Christianity. It was no. never the intention. Well, it, was, it was always ever, um, Jesus only ever, he exclusively talked about the kingdom, which was antithetical to empire which was antithetical to the existing structures of the Romans and the Jews and everybody else. It was this wholly other thing that was supposed to be governed and run uh, completely differently than the rest of the world. And so the fact that we, you know, that we literally turned Christianity into Judaism 2.0, you know, and just changed the names of some things around, you know, what really struck me was as, as interesting was um, I went to a, a Shabbat service of couple, two, three years ago now. Um, I don't remember. There was the, uh, the shooting in Pennsylvania at a, at a synagogue. You guys remember that? And uh, anyway, try to get some of my local Protestant church people to go show some support to our very, very small, we have a very small Jewish community, little tiny um, synagogue here. And I've become really good friends with, with them. But um, long story short, I sat through a, a Shabbat service for the first time in my life. It is eerily identical to every church service I've ever been in. You know what I mean? I expected it to be completely different and sort of foreign and weird. And I'm like, holy mackerel, this feels an awful lot like the, the only parts that were f- weird to me were the parts that where they read, you know, the, the scriptures in Hebrew. But everything else was like, <laughs> was so it's strange to me. I don't, I, I don't mean that as a dig on anybody, just just as a, a realization that 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 what you were just saying, I think is true, that we that Paul comes along and, and not being able to deny his own upbringing and the, 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 the things that are already in his mind, he just recreates something different, but still structured around what he knows. Um, and I think that's just a, it's just a human propensity, you know, to, to, to just do like, like you said. I had a pastor recently sit me down and say, hey, you know, this word deconstruction has become such a thing. And he's like, let, let me tell you where I see the problem of deconstruction. And and I, I'm sorry to impersonate him like that. He's a great guy. And, <laughs> and, uh, let me tell um, you what I think. He's, he says, <laughs> he says to me, we've seen this before, you know, it was, it was called the Jesus movement. And then it was called the emergent church. And, you know, it happens every 20 years or so. And then we come back to, to where we were. And so you just have to be careful that you're just not in the next wave of the next thing, Paul. And, and, you know, that sounds like wisdom in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> and I sat, with it for, I sat with him for a bit and I said, could it be the reason we keep going through this cycle is because at the end of it, we keep building the same fucking thing we right. built before. We keep over going back over. to the trough of what we know. And maybe, so because his thing was like, if you're going to deconstruct, you have to know what you're building on the other side. And I'm like, maybe. No, maybe no, this is a no, Jeremiah, tear it all down, leave it burned to the ground for 70 years so a new generation can build yeah. something totally new. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. I mean, I totally agree with you on that. The uh, um, I, I'm 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 firmly in this deconstruction thing, by the way. And I, for me, for my money, uh, for whatever it's worth, it's different. And I've been through all those other movements. I've been through the emergent church movement. I, I, John and I were born and raised in the Jesus movement. Um, so we've been through that. We've been through the Word of Faith thing. I've been through the Grace thing. 
And I'm telling you, there's something different about this. And there's something fundamentally changing. Now I'm um, intrigued. What's different about it? I want to hear that. I, I think guys. what's different is, is I'm hearing people like you say what you just said, which is I'm not anxious to rebuild it. Like I, and I, I've seen people fall into this trap, by the way, too. I, I, do see, I do see people who are like, okay, now that we've torn it down, we have to start building something up. And, yeah. But I hear a lot of people pushing back on that, too, saying, actually, no. Actually, in fact, I'm, I'm in the middle of, of finishing up a book that I'm writing. And what, I, what, what I'm trying very desperately to not do is give advice on how to rebuild what I've just deconstructed because I'm not sure it needs to be rebuilt. Well, um, I, I, it I, does, I, I think you're right. Let the ground lay fallow for a generation and let somebody unencumbered by the past somewhat reimagine something completely different. Um, but because you're right, every single one of those little movements do come and go. My friend Caleb Miller, who I brought up a couple times on the show, um, likens that you know he just like he just like movements or movements. You know they they pass. He, you know it's almost like you know sort of scatological. It's like they they're gonna move. You're gonna have your <laughs> movement, and then you're gonna go back to normal, right? And uh, and you're right because those things do sort of come and go, and they ebb and they flow. Um, <laughs> right? Sorry, more scatological humor. They ebb and they flow. Um, but I don't know. And maybe it's just because I'm in it and, and I want to feel like it's different. There's every possibility that's true. What, what do you think, John? Uh, I, I had uh, a friend of mine asked me this question like last week. You know, what does deconstruction mean to you? Well, first of all, deconstruction doesn't mean the same, I think, because I've been doing this for so damn long. I started this back in like 80, 88, 89, uh, when that, the word deconstruction wasn't a word. But the two things that I see that are different than the Jesus movement or the emerging church movement and all these other, the grace movement is in this deconstruction or whatever you want to call this, people are willing to deconstruct their vision and their view of Jesus. They're willing to absolutely tear all the shit down. You know, everyone's like, well, you gotta, you gotta keep a strong foundation. They're like, no, I'm thinking we built on a bad foundation. We need to tear down the foundation too. We need to tear it all down. And if Jesus isn't there, Jesus isn't there. And then I move on. That's the one is that they're willing to, they're, they're actually willing to destroy everything down to nothing. And the second is they've come to the realization that this is not a one and done, that this is going to be a deconstruction, reconstruction, however you want to call it. But these are going to co-mingle and they're going to work together. And you are actually going to probably never stop deconstructing. Mm. And it's I, scary I'm as fascinated, hell. I'm fascinated to hear you say that when I see the cross over your shoulder. So, so <laughs> where, is your, where is your Christology today? <laughs> well, first of all, the, the, uh, the cross you see behind me is uh, actually a gift from my brother. Uh, it is. Uh, I was worried it was, about him, so I sent him a cross to watch over him. It was uh, <laughs> as I was re-emerging into some kind of faith, um, and I was letting go of, of PSA. And uh, this idea that God punished God to save us from God, bullshit, right? So it's the Trinitarian cross where it's Jesus on the cross, God the Father is holding him uh, from behind with his, and so, and then the dove uh, representing uh, the Holy Spirit is right above. So it is, it is showing you that God is with Jesus within this. He had never, never left him nor forsake him, right? Which, which in the, in the PSA world, we believe exactly the opposite, right? In that moment, God abandoned Jesus and left his son to die and suffer and feel the loss of his father, which we, you know, as I now know, never happened that way. Worst anyway, dads ever. Ever. Yeah, exactly. ever. Ever. So 
I don't call myself a Christian anymore. I don't use that word. Um, and, and this has come up in our podcast multiple times. When people ask me if I'm a Christian, the, the, the question I ask them is, what is, what does Christian mean to you? Yeah. And, um, from their answer, I can either say, yes, I am that or no, I'm not that. I'm a follower of the way. I'm a follower of Jesus and what he has taught us to do. But we're not, and I agree where the word evangelical is lost and we can never, I don't think we can ever recover it. I'm also kind of in that place with the word Christian. I'm worried that we can no longer save it either. That has been so connected to the evangelical, religious, right, moral majority bullshit that it, it, there's too much, there's just way too much baggage connected to it. And it's, it's now, it's a, it's a hate speech word. I'd say, I hate to say it, but Oof. I mean, as soon as you hear Christian, it's, it, it means so much bullshit. It means racism. It means nationalism. It means all this stuff that it, it's just never is meant to mean. Well, I don't, I don't, I'm not quite as pessimistic about the, about the use of that word. I don't actually care. You know what I mean? And so to, for me, if that grieves a person more than the stuff that's actually going on in the world, if you're more grieved about the fact that you might lose this identity, um, then maybe the priorities have been screwed up anyway. It's a word. You know, the Christians didn't even call themselves Christians for the first century anyway. Um, that's a much later thing. I was going to say this before I forget. The other thing I find that's interesting about the deconstruction movement, um, and I'm fine with using that word, even though Jacques Derrida meant it completely differently and we've co-opted it, and that's fine. We all know what it means for us, right? We're taking things apart. We're re-examining some things. Um, where I will know this is just another flash in the pan bullshit movement will be when people start opening up churches of deconstruction. <laughs> and I haven't seen it, you know, but I've seen all kinds of the hypergrace movement spawned a bunch of hypergrace churches, word of faith movement spawned a whole bunch of people who built their foundation on top of the name it and claim it prosperity gospel. Um, if I start seeing somebody, if some joker out there opens up the first church of deconstruction, then I will, I will call it like it's a done. We got to move on to the next thing. Uh, will it happen? I don't know. John's exactly right, by the way, that I think hopefully the healthy view of this is that this is an ongoing process, um, that we see it in another sort of in the vein of the Reformation where, listen, periodically, we just have to, we just have to tear these things apart and, and look at the places where we've interjected man-made structures into something that is otherwise beautiful and good and occasionally just rescue the faith from, from, from its own adherence, you know, yeah. and find what's worth salvaging. And I think there's plenty worth salvaging. I think there's plenty worth saving. I'm still way compelled by the image of Jesus. I'm still really, really um, in love with the mystery of it all. And so I, you know, I, but John's right about the other thing. I've, I've said you're right like four times in the show, John. So you should probably, <laughs> it's a banner day for John that when I, when I entered into this thing, I, I actually, I think maybe unlike some people, I did this knowingly and, and, you know, for some people, deconstruction is something that's kind of thrust upon them circumstantially. Things just go haywire. And out of that, you just have to reexamine some things. I sort of made a conscious effort to do it. And Jesus was all, Jesus was absolutely on the table. You know what I mean? Like, okay, let's deconstruct all of it. If you, if that's, if that's sacrosanct, and you can't even question the legitimacy of how you perceive of or conceive of that. You're never going to get to the bottom of it. So everything has to be on the table at that point. And then I kind of hoped and prayed he'd still be there in the rubble. And people always use that, you know, if if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we are to be pitied. 
I just don't buy it. You know, I, I, I have a friend that uh, an atheist friend that does a podcast. I go on there from time to time. And, and I'm like, even, even if we find, and you know, there's not a lot of historicity of Jesus out there. Uh, uh, you know, even if we find it's just a story, I still find something radically amazing in the story. Yeah. And I'll it's still true. continue to yeah. love it and embrace it and let it pull me to my best self because I think it's an incredible story. It's just been bastardized by human beings. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I have the, Rob Bell has this thing he talked about, um, and I think it came out in, in The Velvet Elvis. I think it's where he first talked about doctrine and stuff. And he sort of made the, a contrast between doctrine as a brick wall and doctrine as a trampoline. And, and his point was that, you know, if, if you build this rigid structure of, of doctrine and you start removing a piece here and there, the whole thing falls in on itself. Um, whereas if you have this massive trampoline and it's got, you know, 200 springs on the outside of it and you pull one off or you pull two off or pull three off, guess what? You're still bouncing, bro. And so he was like, listen, if, if I was to, if you were to tell me tomorrow that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, um, I'm still bouncing. I like, think that's I don't, a very iffy story, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So? I, oh, I do oh, too. Yeah. I do too. I mean, it, it, linguistically, I could tear it apart. You know, and then, and then the bottom line for that is, who cares? You right. know, we've made it such a central pillar of everything that if we lose it, well... Come on, I mean, we, we know why. I mean, the purity culture can't even be what it is if, if well, Jesus I mean, wasn't born of a virgin. Well, the, the, uh, why does there snow... To... But but poor Mary had three or four other kids, apparently immaculately. <laughs> so how'd that happen? You know, we condemned her to a, a whole sexless life, and she still had to bear children. What the hell's up with that? That's even, that unfair. Even yeah, wouldn't that be unfair? <laughs> having kids and not you got to have the kids, and you don't get to have sex too. Son of a god. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's again, it's it's a fear of looking at at our own scripture and and saying. Huh, only two of the four Gospels talked about the virgin birth, and Jesus never talked about it once. No, none of the other New Testament writers ever talked about it. You know, it's, it's no. so why why is it so important? In fact, I think if Jesus was was a bastard son, it makes the story all the more incredible. I, I, it does, and, and, and I, you know, to me, the story of Jesus, or I, at least I say this: What if Jesus? didn't come to say, I'm going to free you from the bondage of looking at pornography and being gay and whatever else, but I've come to free you from any bondage that ties you to a community that enslaves you. That, you know, when he says, you know, you're going to know the truth and it'll set you free. The answer of the people around him is we've never been slaves. We're sons of Abraham. We're a part of this community. Their declaration is we're free because we belong to this group. And he says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. I think he's saying, if you're enslaved in your identity to a community and a community belief system, you're a slave to that system forever. But if you understand your identity as a, as a human being connected to something supernatural and connected to each other, you are freed by that. And, and I believe that's the story of Jesus, not to say I'm God in the flesh, but to say, I'm sorry, let me go fully heretical. We're all God in the flesh. We all carry the image of heaven in us. And once we start to understand that, we begin to access the supernatural goodness of heaven and bring it 
from earth or from heaven to earth and advance the kingdom of loving one another and loving the world and our enemies selflessly. And if we all did that, it would change everything. It to would. me, that's right. a radical, beautiful, incredible story. And the sad part is that, yes, the modern day church would say that's heretical when our church fathers literally said that. Yeah. It's just another proof that our modern church, Church Universal, I'm not talking about any one specific church, but the Church Universal has so divorced itself from the church fathers that what it would be considered the gospel is now considered heresy. Yeah. Well, that's what it, what it, uh, what it, uh, Baxter Kruger say, you know, one of his more famous things he says is, um, we've been, we've, we've told, we've told this version of the gospel for so long that when somebody preaches the real gospel, it sounds like heresy. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's what we've done. We've just, we've preached a version of this that is so, um, tangled up with our own politics and nationalism and our own, our own opinions and our own culture right. and preferences. Um, that when, and, and, you know, one thing that was striking to me was, was, you know, my part of my deconstruction was, was predicated on understanding that I didn't know my own church history and that I wasn't taught that in my evangelical churches because why would they? If they actually went out and taught you what the early church told us, they would, they would be admitting that they were living in contrast to <laughs> So yeah. I had no, I had no knowledge of all that stuff, you know. It was my, my pastoral seminary training that screwed me up. I, you know, the, <laughs> the first time I learned the word rapture wasn't in the Bible. I'm like, what? What? Right. You gotta be effing kidding me. And, right. and, so and then I'm not getting left behind learning. How the canon of the Protestant Bible was put together totally rocked my world because I thought this yeah. thing had floated down from heaven. It's what right. I'd always been taught. And to realize that, that men fought over it and fought viciously over it. And there were those that oh, said geez. the revelation of Peter should be the last book of the canon, not the revelation of John. And it was a close boat. And learning all of those things made me say, well, well how can it be inerrant then? Yeah. I, even well, if the words are inerrant, the process is very human. Right and, right. and so all of that began to change how, how yeah. I looked at how we relate to scripture and what it means to us. And, and the idea of that, that we were taught then is that the Bible is inspired, perhaps not inerrant. I, I can live with that. Yeah, I can, I can live, live with that too. That's sad. And I, I might even have I might even take issue with the inspired part. I don't know. Um, yeah, but it, and, and I guess it would come down to definitions of inspiration and okay, what does that mean? You know, I remember telling somebody Chronicles of Narnia is inspired writing too, right? right? Well, you know, what does what does Paul say? He's well, if he wrote Timothy, which he probably didn't, but you know, all Scripture is God breathed, right? Well, um, so are you, and so am I, according to Scripture. Um, that's how the first man was animated was with the breath of, okay. So, so in air, so God breathed can't mean perfect. Um, and, and it, it shouldn't because actually a, a human's, uh, here's, here's my take on this. We're getting close to the end. We're going to have to cut this pretty soon, John. I'm so sorry, but the scriptures being a human product in partnership with God is way more beautiful to me than some sort of manna from heaven thing, especially when it comes with all the problems it comes with. But I love the idea that it, that it, it is, it's, a, it's a project of God 
and man, men trying and wrestling with and getting it right and sometimes getting it wrong and wrestling with their concepts of God and, and the, the, you know, the, the idea that scripture has a trajectory and an arc to it, way more interesting to me than, oh, here it is. The Bible says it. I believe it. I believe it because it says it. And you know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's, I don't know. It's so, it's, it's so boring. <laughs> it's like, and it paints you in, it makes, it forces you to paint yourself in all kinds of corners, you know, and you know, as well as anybody, it makes you do a bunch of mental gymnastics to try and harmonize things which are not harmonizable, um, which I think I just invented a word, John, Harm, harmon, harmonizable. And I think all of that, that you just, you just said is so important because we've just got to give people permission to be freed from that bondage of the Bible said it, I believe it. It, it, it creates such an environment of, of closed thinking and of, and, and really, like I said, childhood trauma, it presses against our mental health. It, it presses against our emotional well-being. It presses against so many things that are so great in our humanity and our construction as as the beings that we are. So I, I, I just think if we can give people, and you guys are doing something so important to just say, hey, here's a context that you can look at this differently without assigning yourself to hell or God's anger or something else. Like it's actually beautiful and fruitful to start to look at these things from a different perspective. 100%. And as, as we get ready in this, I mean, you know, I would challenge people to do one thing. That's what not what we're talking about here is just take some time and, and actually study church history and study, like you're saying, study how the Bible became canon. And you will be shocked. I mean, I, I used Hamilton as an idea, right? It's like uh, from the song Hamilton, where there's a song called uh, The Room Where It Happened. I would love to have been the, in the room where this happened because you literally find out that there are like shady deals being made to kick one book out to save another book. Uh, well, I'll let you have this book, provided this book goes away. Literally happened. Well, fist and that, fights and all kinds of arguments. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of lore about how this all went down. It's like, I'm not sure I want to be in the room where it happens. It's like, I'm not sure. It's like being in the room where the sausage gets made. I'm like, yeah. I don't know, man. It seems gruesome and weird. But um, yeah, it's all of that is very cool, man. I, I uh, wish you all kinds of luck with, with the things that you're working on, your your podcast and if, uh, any books. You're, I know you have written a book. You have hopefully you've got some more in the works. Um, uh, make sure and check out uh, the website, all right, pastor-paul.com. Obviously, you're on TikTok because you are the TikTok pastor. So y'all like light him up on the TikTok thingy, which I still don't think. Five years ago, I'm going to be on TikTok. I would have said you're absolutely insane. Five years ago, you'd have been what? Tick what? Was there there TikTok five years ago? (laughs) I love it, man. Whatever medium you can use, um, we will obviously link to all that stuff in the show notes. We'll make sure you guys check them out. Uh, maybe one day we can reciprocate and be a be a guest on your show, man. Love it. It'd be a Love lot it. of fun. Yeah. We'll do a little little podcast mashup. But I really appreciate you. Um, I can speak for John and myself. Say we really enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. And as always, we could we could probably talk to you for another hour or two and just never yeah. run out of stuff to talk about. So, um, but man, thank you for coming on and giving of your time. We really do appreciate it, man. Yeah, it's no small thing to be invited in, into somebody's living room, and so I'm honored and and really appreciate you guys reaching out. You betcha. Well, thanks. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch. 
where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.